This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. A lot of us have been conned, and so one of the greatest cons in the history of the church, into thinking that if you have the right thoughts in your head, that you are living the right life. And when in actuality, Christianity is more than hearing, processing, agreeing, it's a doing. It is a bearing of fruit that, that evidences a very real change. And so when Jesus gives his parables, he'll oftentimes give twos. I know you guys have heard me say this many times. But there's always twos. All throughout the Bible, there's twos. You have the flesh, and you have the spirit. You have the old, you have the new. But there's one that pleases God and one that doesn't. You have the first Adam, and he failed. And he has a just penalty that hangs over his head. And anyone that is in Adam, all the descendants of Adam, receive his just penalty. But then there is one known as the last Adam, or the second man. And he did it properly. He pleased God. And when we exit Adam through repentance and we believe in Jesus, we step into the second. And it's the second that pleases God. And so you have goats and sheep. You have tares and you have wheat. And the difference between the goats and the sheep are the sheep do something. The difference between the tares and the wheat is the wheat bears fruit. And so that should weigh on us. If you ever study those stories, they have to touch you somehow, some way. The last thing we want is to be the one that Jesus says, I never knew you. And for me, I, I'm not interested in creating unnecessary discomfort in us as a body. I just want us to live in reality and not have a church film that glazes over our understanding that causes us to think we are fine when in actuality we are not. Living in this culture deadens us. The American culture is amazing as it is for certain things. You have to admit, we have freedom to go and share the gospel anywhere we want. And yet, why is it that we share it less than persecuted countries do? The church in persecuted countries are far more daring, far more courageous, and far more adept at sharing the gospel. Why in the world, when we have so much freedom, are we so paralyzed? And that is, I think... Part of what God is touching on in many of our lives is he is bringing certain dross to the surface and he's showing us that, yes, we have the right thoughts and, yes, in many ways we are living right lives. Our marriages are in a general sense healthy. Our families are in a general sense healthy. But are we producing fruit? We brought this up many times over. I mean, this is, you feel like, uh, you know, you're like, have I heard Eric say this before? This is a common return to the old stuff. I don't see anything wrong with that. Paul repeated himself all the time. And for me, this is what I'm always saying to myself, too. I can so easily be caught in good Christian work. I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to be doing. However, I do not want to be caught in the same trap of thinking I'm doing the right thing just because it's spiritual sounding. I want to be obedient to the Spirit of God. 
And I think the Spirit of God wants to give us something in our soul, a weight, a deposit. Three years ago, I, I don't think it was four, I think it was three, we went through a whole series of sermons on the praying and the confessing church. A church that prays will change the world. But a church that merely only prays is not actually going to change the world. It's a church that prays and then acts. A church that prays and confesses. Confession is in moving in perfect agreement with something else. It is a mirror image to something. And so the word hama legeo, hama meaning similar in movement, and legeo, logos. It's actually the word for logos or word in the Bible. So it's in stride with the word. So when we're in agreement with Jesus Christ, the word, what will our lives look like? What will we testify of? There is a diabolical attack, there always has been, on the church of Jesus Christ. The devil is, uh, seems to be alive and kicking these days, and he is intent on undermining the integrity of the church of Jesus Christ. He wants us to think that it's about something different than it is. He wants to take our gaze off of the centerpiece of the cross. He wants us looking elsewhere, the whole while feeling spiritual. When we understand that, then we recognize his game. He wants to turn our gaze from the simplicity that is found in Jesus Christ, the singularity of focus in him. So we have all sorts of odd things that are creeping into the church today. Okay, I mean, odd. Okay, we have a flat earth movement that is creeping into the church, and there's a lot of people that are dead set on saying that this is a serious thing to consider. We have a fresh movement of feminism that has woven itself into the church. Some of the strongest Christian leaders today are taking a strong stand on saying, hey, you know, feminism is a perfectly valid thing. Jesus was a feminist. And so we have these odd things. The NAR movement, which many of you might not be familiar with, but it's the New Apostolic Reformation. They're changing their name because of some of the bad press that they're getting. But what they're doing is indirectly... They're exalting the word of men above the word of God, which is exactly what went wrong with the Catholic Church. When you exalt any man's authority above the authority of Scripture, you get weird. The emergent movement, which many of you have probably heard me speak about, postmodern kookiness, uh, what they did is they exalted man's opinion above the word of God, their own experience above the word of God. And as a result, they went berserk. And what we see today which has crept into most of the conservative church of our day, this NAR movement, is actually exalting prophetic words above the word of God. But the only way to test that prophetic word is with the word of God. Whenever we see a diminishment of the word of God in text, the word of God in person, and the word of God in action, the cross, we take note as the church of Jesus Christ. But when we stand up on these points, when we profess or confess with our mouth, we need to recognize that there is a battle that ensues. There are certain things. For instance, if I were to speak on homosexuality today and what the Bible clearly states in regards to it, some of you would get uncomfortable in here. And I could say, why? It's just what the Word of God says. It's because it goes against a spirit of the age. The spirit of the age applauds a compromise. It applauds us turning a blind eye. It applauds us taking an easier path removing all the, the hard stuff out of the Bible and, and just getting to the easier things, the comfortable things. You know, he is our shepherd. It's like, okay, I, I can handle that. Uh, all that live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't know that we want to stick that on our refrigerator. In other words, 
We are called to be the church of Jesus Christ in an age and a generation where the devil is hell-bent to destroy us. So do we recognize that this is a battle? When we begin to rise up to share the truth of Jesus Christ in this generation, should we be surprised that there is a backlash? No. Three years ago, we experienced as a church a backlash when we began to go out and share the gospel. So much so that many of us just sort of stopped doing it. Now what we see is a fresh wind in the sails. It is filling the sails of our church and we feel a propulsion outward. I want us to continue. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We're the church. No weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. We are the church. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We are the church. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Let's act like it. So now let's get going. I need to supposedly get done before noon. Over broken glass. The uncomfortable commission. Some of you could probably guess maybe what this is about uh, since I, I just gave a pretty warm uh, intro. Overbroken glass is a concept that flows out of a, uh, a dying man's statement. And I, I took a version of it from Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, his name was Charles Peace. He was an Englishman uh, known as a thief and a murderer. It's funny how this man has caused so much, garnered so much attention over the years. He was just some bad guy, and he went to the gallows and was hung. I mean, that's happened to quite a few bad guys over the years. Why did this guy get so much attention? Well, he was being brought to the gallows, and a priest was walking along with him reading uh, out of the uh, consolations of religion uh, to him and trying to get this man to realize he was going to hell if he did not repent and believe. And hell was a very bad place. And this is what Charles Peace said, and you'll probably understand why this man has, now why he's being quoted in a sermon all these years later by even Eric Ludi. Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it. If need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from eternal hell like that. So, my question, I guess, to start this out is, is he right? In other words, he says, if I were to believe what you are telling me, then the greatest sacrifice would be considered worth it just to gain one soul. If what you are telling me about hell is actually true. Now, when I read that, I get uncomfortable. I don't like Charles Peace telling me how I should be living, and I don't like him, a thief and a murderer, giving me any assessment of how we as the church should be functioning. And yet there's a reason why this quote lingers, why it sort of hangs out in the church, because it reminds us, even a sinner can see how serious this is. He may not believe it, but he's saying, guys, if you actually did believe this, then what are you doing about it? If you actually believe that there's a hell that awaits and that hell is eternal, then what are you doing as a result? Are you just living fat and happy in America? 
There's dying people around you, right down the road, right across the street. What are you doing about it? So many of you, when, when you, if you saw the video that we played, the film by Ray Comfort, it was called The Fool, and we watched it in here, there's a little short clip from Penn Jillette. I don't know if Penn Jillette is better known as an atheist. To us, he's sort of known as an atheist, because uh, he's a, what's called a new atheist. They're very militant and very strong in their opinion to flush uh, any religious fervor and belief out of society. That's the new aggressive version of atheism. So I don't know if we know him as an atheist or just as a famous magician out of uh, Las Vegas. So this is what he said in the video. I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That means share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize or share your faith? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Ouch. So I think just to start out, we all agree that this is important. Now, some of you may not be believers. You may hang out with Penn Jillette uh, on the weekends and, and uh, get along great with them in regards to these beliefs. However, for those of us that genuinely believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and what it says in his word, we have to allow this to touch us, to make us uncomfortable, to say, if we truly believe this, then what? So uh, this is sort of an allegory uh, of something known as slow rot. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? How would you like to have slow rot? I wouldn't. So I'm going to introduce you to the suburb of destruction. This is the district under the governance of Mayor Macabre on that, side of the, on that side of the line. Put quotes around it. Under the canopy of darkness where every single person is slowly dying from slow rot. Oh, that's terrible. And if you're on that slide of, side of the line and you're over there, uh, then you're dying from slow rot. The suburb of salvation, the district under the governance of King Christ, it's on the other side of the line, you know, right over here. In the full light of the Son of God, where every single person is made whole and healthy through the lone cure. And so here we are, we're so happy, we're singing our songs, and we have the cure. We have the lone cure. And over there on that side, I mean, they're dying of slow rot. We all know that. Slow rot. I'm going to introduce you to the disease. A disease that always leads to a slow, miserable, painful death. The rot weevil hatches at the uttermost point of the great cardiac vein near the apex of the human heart. It feeds on human blood and slowly grows, eating away the life of the host. By the way, this is made up for those young kids in here that are like, ah! It feeds on human blood and slowly grows, eating away the life of the host. The rot weevil's secret is its numbing agent that it injects into the heart tissue of its host prior to devouring the tissue. Therefore, the human is wholly unaware of the horrible creature eating away at its insides. See, by the way, this is sin. This is how sin works. It's amazing, but you can be satisfied in sin for a season. How can you be satisfied in sin? Don't you realize that it leads to death? Well, you see it as a numbing agent. And the first thing it does is it numbs you to its death-making attributes. And so as a result, in its initial season of hold in our life, we find great delight in our sensual pleasures. But, as you'll see with the rot weevil, 
After the rot weevil increases to the size of a baseball, it begins to be noticed by the human due to the fact that the pain of the weevil's feasting is greater than the power of the weevil's numbing agent. From this point till death, the human suffers an abject misery. That is, unless the lone cure for slow rot is brought. The lone cure. We're going to call it the blood transfusion. It's a change of life. Come to the hospital on this side of the line, is the message. You see, you have to give up that side of the line. You have to come to this side of the line. Submit to the great physician and let him supply you the new blood for your body. You lie down and yield to his tender yet firm salvation. He will place his own life within your body and you must allow your own blood, your old blood, your old life to exit. When his life comes in, the rot weevil will be driven out and all future rot weevil eggs will have no old blood to feed on and grow. Sort of disgusting, I recognize, but so is sin. So how do we respond? Now, this is a personal invite to Eric Ludi. I want you to stick your name in there. Hey, you. Huh? What? Yeah, you, Eric. Oh, me? Me? Go. Huh? And he said unto Eric Ludi, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. See, most of us, when we see these, we know he spoke to the apostles and we know they were sent ones. What we struggle with is the personal application because I have things I need to do. To obey the scriptures, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to tend to my business activities and my ministry activities with excellence and integrity. That doesn't leave a tremendous amount of time to fulfill things like that. I know that Paul, the apostle, was you know, commissioned to do that type of stuff. Peter, the, yeah, the other guys, you know, all the ones that died uh, deaths of martyrdom. Yeah, they, they had time to do that. Don't you know that Peter and his buddies were fishermen? They had a job. Don't you know that they laid down their nets to follow Jesus? See, I struggle with this at every inch of my being because I did lay down my nets to follow Jesus. That's what I've done. And yet, even after I lay down my nets, it's funny how I can pick up new nets. And then when I hear the clear commission, I can be like, well, God, could you have me excused because I'm busy doing your work? What I want more than anything is to know what he wants me to do in this time that I'm here on earth and then do it with all the gusto that is inside of me. Go ye therefore, Eric Ludi, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And the Lord said unto Eric Ludi, Go onto the high, out onto the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you, Eric Ludi. There are always two. The church that goes silent and the church that confesses. So if we were going to check the box that we represent as a church, I think we're hovering between the two right now. I think we have unwittingly checked the first box at times where we're just going to have good sound doctrine and good life in here. But we can't go out there and confess the way that we know God wants us to. And we have our various excuses and justifications. But I desire us to be a church that does. A church that is willing to get uncomfortable. A church that is willing to get uh, incorrect in the eyes of society, if necessary. So that we can bring to bear upon their souls the true love of Jesus in and through the gospel. The confessing church, the only real church, is the church that does something. So if you study Christianity throughout the ages, you're going to notice that whenever a wicked regime takes over a country by hostile takeover, 
that it will usually allow the church to exist. Even atheistic communism would allow a church to exist, but it was a church under their control. And a lot of Christians will submit to that, a lot of pastors will submit to that, where they will stop preaching the things that would offend the wicked regime. But there's always a church in every persecuted nation that rises up, or I should say, that goes underground. Sounds funny to rise up and go underground. But they go underground in their practice. In other words, they're not sanctioned by the government. Their practice is technically illegal. But they have to share the truth of Jesus Christ. In our culture, we have a numbing agent. It's called social correctness, political correctness. And it, though it is not mandated that I don't say certain things, I feel it as a pastor. And though it is not mandated that you shut up and don't go out and share the gospel, you feel it. You feel that you're not supposed to do that. When you're in a public setting, you know the rules. You see, it's not government sanction where you're going to be thrown into prison, but at the same time, there's something there, and we know it. There's some rule that's written down that says you're not supposed to talk to them about Jesus right now. They don't want to hear you talking about Jesus, and so you better be quiet. You see, the church that functions in that setting is the confessing church. The church that is willing to confess even when the rules say shut up, that is what we're after. So we're going to go through Matthew 10. Now, this is a very fast version of going through Matthew 10. But Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples, now apostles. He's, he's actually saying, I'm sending you on this particular mission. Now, I want you to see the similarities, okay, of how he sends out his church. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said unto them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. I think we oftentimes forget that this goes with the territory. You see, in America, we avoid these things like they're plagues. In other words, Jesus says, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they have an agenda. And what will they do? They will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. By the way, these are places of worship. Sometimes the greatest opposition is the religious system itself, which says, shut up. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Do not fear them. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear them. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You do know what a cross is, right? And what do you think it would have sounded like to to the disciples there? Jesus hadn't died on a cross yet. It's a Signal of public execution, torture. And what is he saying? He who does not take his symbol of public execution and torture with him and follow after me is not worthy of me. What? See, when we think of the cross, we think of what Jesus died on, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, a cross separate from Jesus is still 
a death instrument. And we, this is before he died on the cross, he's literally saying, you want to follow after me? You want to live a life worthy of me? Pick up that and carry it with you. Well, that, that would mean I would suffer as I go. That would mean I would be in pain as I would go. Pick it up. In other words, we know full well as we start this journey that we are choosing to follow the suffering Savior. He who, will, who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Well, that is a powerful chapter, and I skipped most of it there. So, I don't know what your comfort rating is so far in this message. However, I think there's a strong majority of us in here that though parts of this cause us to tremble, we genuinely desire it. Now, there's some of you that have busted past that, that barrier, that awkward barrier where social correctness is over here, the appeasing and you know, popularity, all the different things that cause us to stop. And you've stepped over that line and you've gotten uncomfortable and you've seen God faithful in that. Some of you have tasted that and some of you want to taste that. You're still in that paralyzed state. You're like, God, I, I'm ready to share for you. And then someone walks by and you're like, and he, you even know. He's like, well, how about that person? Well, how about the next person? In other words, you want to, but there's a strange paralysis in your life. We want to be the confessing church, but oh, we are so weak, so timid, so, so, how do you say it? American. You see, I love America. I love being an American. I think we have a pretty extraordinary history, so I'm not at all trying to you know, spit on our constitution or somehow take a shot at our country. I thank God for our country. However, we have inherited something in this country which has dulled us in regards to the content of this message. It is very easy to hear this message and do nothing. And yet that is impossible. How can you hear this message and do nothing? Well, you see, if you're an American, you can if you're an American, you can get away with all sorts of nonsense in your spiritual life because, hey, we don't have persecution. I have plenty of opportunity to go share. I don't have to risk my life to do it. I don't actually have to pick up a cross and follow. And there is where we are wrong. If you really want to be a Christian, you want to be worthy of Jesus Christ, you have to go pick up that cross and recognize that you have to take this thing with you. And if you really want to stand for Jesus Christ in this generation, you're going to make waves. And this culture will not be happy with it. I've oftentimes said this. When true Christianity comes back to the stage of time, one of two things will happen. One, worldwide revival will break out. Two, they'll freshly erect crosses and stick us on them. There's two options, two outcomes. We're not seeking some middle road between the two. We want to see Jesus receive his due in this generation. So let me define American for you, the modern definition. So this is Eric's definition, okay? <clears throat> Inclined toward comfort, ease, self-satisfaction, self-reward, self-coddling, and letting someone else do the heavy lifting for us. It is so much easier to give $100 to a missionary, to an evangelist to go do it than it is for you to get uncomfortable and do it yourself. 
I have to admit, it's pretty brilliant, us Americans, what we can come up with. It's like, I could pay someone else to do that. And yet, I'm not saying you shouldn't support missions. I think we should. However, I think every single one of us also needs to accept the call to be a missionary. I don't care if you're working a full-time job. You can still be a missionary. I think we are supposed to bear witness of Jesus Christ in every sector of this world. So therefore, it's not just the missionaries, formal missionaries that do nothing but share Jesus. I'm talking about we still are missionaries. I remember one, I went to missionary training years ago, and this was their byline. You're either a missionary or a mission field. Well, that was enough to get us motivated. Most of us, this is just how it works. The way you are trained by your father, you have a tendency to father the same way. The way, if you're a woman, the way you're trained by your mother is the way you have a tendency to mother. There's nothing wrong with that unless you inherit sort of a, a funny concept uh, of fathering or mothering from them. That's how it works. And so think about it this way. The way that you came to Jesus Christ is often the way that you evangelize. So if you were evangelized in and through home, in other words, you received Jesus in and through your parents and in and through a church environment, what do you have a tendency to do? You have a tendency to focus on your great mission field being your kids and bringing people to church and maybe they can sort of be illuminated the way you were. If you were reached on the streets, if you were a down and outer and someone came up to you, gave you a cup of cool water, put their hand in your back and said, I'd like to give you some hope today. If you were reached in and through that way, do you know what you have a tendency to do? You have a tendency to say, I need to go out and bring a cup of cool water and stick my hand on the back of someone and say, I have hope for you today. You see, whatever we were influenced by, however we were gained, we have a tendency to replicate that in our mindset. Here's our challenge. I'm going to get down, cut to the quick on this one. Our challenge is we were mostly reached in this room in and through relational touch of family and as a result, we struggle with going out and putting our hand on someone's back and giving a cup of cool water and ministering that way. It's foreign to us. It's not the way that we did. Sort of like me telling you, hey, men, you need to be great fathers. You need to do this, 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 and this, but you've never seen it modeled. You're starting at ground zero and you feel like a fish out of water. You don't know how to do it. And so I want to offer grace to start out with and say, I fully understand for instance, when I was in missions training and we had street witnessing, I tell you what, that was the most uncomfortable thing in my entire life. Still to this day, probably ranks as one of the most uncomfortable memories I have is being thrust out onto the street and everyone's like talking, sharing. Well, I think they even had signs, signs. I can't stand signs. And so we're out there on the street with signs. Oh, it was so opposite my social sensitivities. I'm very socially sensitive, very understanding of what people think. I mean, it's like a sixth sense that I have. You know those people that don't seem to have a clue that they're being rude? Doesn't that, isn't that a gift? Because you could go out into the streets and share the gospel and be rude all day long, and you would know that they're offended, right? I'm very sensitized to the fact when I first come up to someone if they don't want to talk to me. And so to bypass that social layering there and to still give them what they need. Do you know that if you were to study social grace and you were to understand that if you came into a uh, 
a party of some kind, a cocktail party, and someone's in the back uh, of the room with their arms folded, okay? What they're saying with those folded arms is leave me alone. And so social grace would say just give them space. You know that Christ's grace overrules social grace? That we are moved by something greater than being sensitive to people. We actually are after their soul. And love is greater than sensitivity because love sometimes will seem insensitive. I'm willing to discipline my kids and it might not seem very sensitive, but it's love. In other words, if I let my kids continue in that behavior, am I actually loving them? I could be sensitive and say, oh, I don't want you to feel any discomfort. Or I could say that needs to be corrected. You see, love is willing to go beyond just mere sensitivity to say, I'm after you. So passivity begets passivity. If you have been a passive Christian and then you lead your children unto a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, what kind of Christian do you think they're going to be? They're going to be passive as well. And we have a heritage of this in the church. Okay, No one's fault as if we, we all should just be indicted as individuals on this. This is just where we're at. So let's acknowledge it. Sort of like if you were a parent and you'd You'd had a, you know, a, a, a ra- rather challenging upbringing, and you want to do it right. You're like, I want to be a great parent, but I just don't know what it looks like. It's not really your fault. It would be your fault if you threw out the hope of it happening, though. In other words, if you keep pressing forward and say, God, I need your help. You've given me a vision for something now. Please enable me to do it. This is where many of us are at. You have a vision And some of you are feeling guilt today, even as I'm talking, because you know week after week we've been talking about this and you still feel the paralysis. I don't think the guilt is where we want to land. I think I want you to freshly turn into Jesus Christ and say, God, you need to do this. And I'm willing for you to make me uncomfortable. I'm willing for you to push me into zones where I have never been before. But I refuse to heed the voice of this culture over your voice. Bernie's Mountain Dogs beget Bernie's Mountain Dog Puppies. I'm just giving you a lesson here. Siamese Cats beget Siamese Kittens. I know, it's profound, isn't it? Timid Christians beget Little Timidettes. However, that said, bold Christians beget bold Christians. You see, if this pattern begins to change and we allow the boldness of Jesus Christ to come through, what sort of Christians are we going to be gaining when we see souls converted? What sort of Christians are they going to be? They're going to be bold ones. Why? Because they were beget through boldness. You see, this is a change that can begin with us. I know we feel weak. There's nothing wrong with that. God has allowed me to feel weakness at such an intense level in my life. And I have fought it for the first beginning of these seasons of ministry when I would feel weakness. I was just trying to get away from the weakness. I wanted to feel strong again. Because when I was growing up, I was complimented. I did well in school. Everyone liked me. I did great in sports. I was strong. And then I stepped forward with Jesus Christ, and the first thing that began to happen is I felt weak all the time. Like I didn't know what to say. I felt awkward. People were making fun of me. I remember everyone in college like, what happened to Eric? You know, and all the relatives, we had such high hopes for him. What what has he done with his life? I felt weak. I wanted compliments. I was used to compliments. Now I didn't have them. So what did it bring me to? Dependence on Jesus. Jesus, I'm doing this for you. You see, anytime we feel weak, it leads us to strength, true strength, Jesus Christ. When we feel confident in our own strength to do what I'm talking about, we're not going to do it well. If you think you can change the world through preaching, 
you won't change anyone. If you know that God can choose a foolish vessel to change the world, then God can start flowing through. You see, we have to be weakened. It can't be our strength. It can't be our natural talent that changes this world. It doesn't work that way. It's us allowing God to take these vessels and speak through them. Relentless Christianity. Those who won't take no as a valid answer and pursue the lost with the pursuit of the Holy Spirit with relentless love, relentless kindness, relentless truth, and relentless invitation. This is something that I've pondered for quite some time. And that is, see, in Matthew 10, it actually talks about going into a city and if, if they don't receive the, the word that you have to share with them, then knock the dust off and move on. And there seems to be two sides to this. Not feeding pearls to swine, not continuing to share the gospel with someone if they're saying no, that doesn't mean you give up on them. It just means in that setting, in that situation, you might need to move on. You might need to give them some more space, but you continue to pray for them. You continue to pursue them. I don't think it actually means neglect them and throw them out as if, oh, there's no hope. Could you imagine if the Holy Spirit did that with us? The first time he moved upon our soul and we were resistant, and then he says, well, I'm going to you know, knock the dust off of my feet and move on to someone else. The Holy Spirit pursues us. The Holy Spirit is relentless, relentless in his love, his kindness, truth, and in his invitation. Even up until death, when we breathe our last, he's literally pursuing us all the way to the end. The greatest sin, the only sin that's forgiven, unforgiven is the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit at death, if you want to say it that way. There's one messenger of the truth, and if you reject him, you don't have any hope, but he is relentless. He's after you all the way to the end. And so I want us to begin to adopt that behavior. Why not? Relentless love. So where's the dignity in such a thing? It is relentlessness, especially in sharing the gospel, is very abhorrent to our culture. Even to share the gospel timidly and to say, hi, hi. Do you know Jesus? No, and I don't want to. Oh, okay. And then we walk off. But could you imagine? That's offensive. That guy's like, oh, I can't believe. I'm trying to just have a, you know, my drink in Starbucks and read my book. And I got these Christians. Okay, even that can be offensive. Let alone coming back and saying, hi again. Hi. Sorry, but I, I didn't do that very well. Uh, maybe I could ask it a little different this time. Do you want to know Jesus? Uh, because he wants to know you. And like, no, I don't want to know Jesus. And then you walk away. And then come back. Could you imagine how offensive this could be? Uh, knock on their table. Hi. In other words, there's nothing right about that. That's socially improper. So, but where's such the dignity in this thing? I, I have this whole collection of Catherine Booth quotes, which is a great person to quote right now because Catherine Booth suffered from the same malady that many of us do. She was scared to death. She was timid, she was quiet, and her husband was bold as a lion. And so she could easily say, okay, William, you go out and share the gospel, I'll just tend to the kids. But God would not let her off the hook. And as a result, she prayed that the Spirit of God would work through her, a timid vessel, and give her the growl of a lion. Now you're going to see what happens in this woman. It's pretty amazing. 
Catherine Booth. By the way, Catherine and William Booth are the founders of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army isn't quite what it used to be now, but they were all about salvation. It's, it's an amazing organization at first. 250,000 people brought into the kingdom, I want to say in the first five years. Just an amazing movement of grace. It was, very it was a very undignified thing looked at humanly to die on a cross between two thieves. That was the most undignified thing ever done in this world, and yet looked at on moral and spiritual grounds, it was the grandest spectacle that ever earth or heaven gazed upon. And methinks that the inhabitants of heaven stood still and looked over the battlements at that glorious, illustrious sufferer as he hung there between heaven and earth. The Pharisees, I know, spat upon the humbled sufferer and wagged their heads and said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Listen to this line. Ah, oh, but he was intent on saving others. That was the dignity of almighty strength allying itself with human weakness in order to raise it. It was the dignity of eternal wisdom shrouding itself in human ignorance in order to enlighten it. It was the dignity of everlasting unquenchable love bearing its bosom to suffer in the stead of its rebellious creature, man. Ah, oh, it was incarnate God standing in the place of condemned apostate man. The dignity of love. Love, love! What holds us back? So we've analyzed this as a church, and I would say for most of us, we'd say it's my pride. My pride, I don't want to look funny. I don't want to look weak. I'm going to introduce you to a thought here. I think it's something bigger than that. It's the want of heavenly love. You see, when you have heavenly love, it melts away resistance. It's a fact. Now, I'm not saying we don't have pride, okay? Let God correct you and convict you on pride whenever he does. However, I think we oftentimes are trying to remove something instead of allow God to move in us and through us with love. So I'm going to give an illustration, just as a quick illustration. The power of love to overrule natural inhibition. As a parent, you find this out, that your love for your children will cause you to do things socially, cause you to risk your life, cause you to do things you wouldn't normally do. Your child's in front of a car that's coming. What are you going to do? You're going to run out. By the way, natural inhibition is going to get away, but it will cause you to run out into a street and get your child out of the way, even if you get hit. What was that? That was how love works. Okay. Now that's just human love. However, just the concept, I'm, I'm using Leslie and the dogs. Leslie does not like dogs. If you came to our house, we have two yippy ones. So how did the Ludi family get two yippie dogs? Because Eric, I like dogs, but I don't want dogs because I don't like smells. Okay, I can go over and see someone else's dog and pet them all day long. I, I love dogs. Leslie doesn't even like dogs and loves a clean house. Okay, so you can just imagine the tensions that we have here. Why do we have dogs? Leslie has dogs because her love as a mother overrules her natural inhibitions. She doesn't like them when they jump up on her leg. And guess what? We have two yippy, jumpy dogs. We have spent, oh, I don't know what it's been, $1,000, $1,500 in dog training. Through, it's just out the window. It means nothing. Uh, our, I, I think you train dogs. When you have young kids, you train dogs, and then you're like, kids, stay away from the dog. Don't untrain the dog. The dog's untrained as quickly as he comes home. The point being... There's a lost and dying world out there, and your natural state doesn't care. Your natural state is not going to risk anything unless you have love for them. But if you have love for them, you'll do daring do. Nothing will stop you. And that's what Paul means by he's compelled. He was compelled by the love of Christ. 
He has to go. He has to speak. Do we have that same love? The confession of Samuel Logan Brengle. So he made a statement. Uh, God blessed the word mightily to others, but I think he blessed it most to myself. That confession put me on record. It cut the bridges down behind me. Three worlds were now looking at me as one who professed that God had, has given me a clean heart. I could not go back now. I had to go forward. God saw that I meant to be true till death. So two mornings after that, just as I got out of bed and was reading some of the words of Jesus, he gave me such a blessing as I had never dreamed a man could have this side of heaven. It was a heaven of love that came into my heart. I walked out over Boston Common before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. Oh, how I loved in that hour I knew Jesus, and I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I loved the sparrows. I loved the dogs. I loved the horses. I loved the little urchins, little children. On the streets, I loved the strangers who hurried past me. I loved the heathen. I loved the world. Aren't you interested? But can we have this same love? Is this just a rare experience that this man has had? As far as I can tell in Christianity... This love is available to every single one of us. However, when we think we have what we need, and as Americans, it's very easy to do that. When we look to our own satchel, our own pockets, what we have, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to try and do this. He says, I'm supposed to love my enemy. And we're like, and we're trying to do it. With our human allotment, we will fail. And when it comes to sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world, As Charles Peace says, hey, if I actually believe that to be true, I'd crawl over broken glass on my hands and knees just to reach one. And we can't even identify. What's missing? We don't love the lost. If we had a baptism of love, baptism means to be immersed in something. If we were immersed in the love of Jesus, I think most of our reticence would begin to melt. But can we have this same love? This is a pretty potent scripture, by the way, that Paul gives us. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. The love of God is shed abroad. There's the fact. The fact that we have not necessarily participated in that depth of love is not what we should focus on. What we should focus on is the fact that God has given it via the Holy Spirit. The word for shed abroad, okay, look at this. <clears throat> you have to clear your throat as you say it. So it's echeo, echeo. So if you get some spittle out, it is actually more Hebrewish. And, but this is Greek. <laughs> this is what it means. To gush forth in great measure, to severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound to burst forth in massive quantity, to dump out in entirety, to break open and spill out, to distribute in great measure, to cascade over due to the vast abundance of substance gushing without restraint into a small vessel. A Niagaran waterfall overwhelmingly plunging into a small container. Imagine a Dixie cup, that's you. And imagine sticking it under Niagara Falls. That's the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. Where does it go? It gets all over the place. It doesn't just stay in the cup. It gets out of the cup and goes everywhere. That's precisely how the Christian lives. The mystery of access. Do what you know to do then. So this is how I've described joy in the past. There's a pipeline. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we're actually attached to the heavenly throne of grace. 
And so as a result, all of God is given to us. We have access to this pressurized channel, this pressurized pipeline of grace. And yet there is a gate valve here. And so many of us are attached and we have access, but we never open the gate valve and receive that which God has given us. The fact that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness is a fact. There's also an equal fact that most of us have not taken advantage of it. There's another supporting element to that is that is we haven't known how to take advantage of it. So I want to teach you at least some of the basics of taking advantage of it. For joy. You know what it says that when you're falsely accused, you're supposed to leap for joy? When you're falsely accused, something strange happens in your body physically. Your gut feels empty and your knees get weak. And God says, leap. Uh, I can't leap. (laughs) I'm about ready to fall to the ground in the fetal position, God. False accusation hits us in a very deep spot in our being. And yet God in those moments says, leap. You see, it goes directly against the natural. But when we agree with God, not with our body, when we agree with God and we leap, even if it be an imperfect leap, that's the equivalent of opening the gate valve. And what floods in is joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what lifts us up at a time of difficulty. When you're thrown into a prison cell, where do you think that song of praise comes from? When you're scourged and you're, let, and you're set out, told not to preach the gospel again, they go away rejoicing. Where does that come from? That comes from that heavenly pipeline that, that was opened up in and through obedience. That same pipeline is crammed full of love. And for many of us in this room, we don't have a natural affection for the people around us. And we feel really bad about that. It's like, God, I know I'm supposed to be willing to crawl over broken glass. I I know intellectually that's true because I know that they're going to die and suffer. I don't care. That's what scares us. God, please change this. Here's what you do. You obey. You do what you know to do and then let God back you. Let God infill you. But you still need to do what you know to do. He who knows what to do and doesn't do it sins. So he who knows what to do and does it, that's the act of righteousness. That is the movement of truth that actually opens up the floodgates for God to back. You want to start loving the lost? Reach out to the lost. You want to gain boldness? Start opening your mouth. You want to know what it means to have the Holy Spirit lead you in a conversation? Let him do it. If you're waiting to have all the wisdom and all figured out, all the love before you ever take a step of obedience, you're going to find that your Christianity will always be lacking. We as American Christians are used to fast food. We're used to self-service. We're used to having everything brought to us. But God says, it's out there. You want it? Go take it. Well, God, couldn't you make this easier? This is the best thing for you, Eric. Obey. You know what to do. So do it. Reintroducing relentless Christianity to the church. Christianity that won't take no for an answer, but is like a Niagara waterfall of unceasing love washing over the lives of the lost and dying. Imagine if this church was so moved by that sort of love that as our little cup was getting all that water from Niagara Falls and it went all over everyone in this culture, in this town, in in northern Colorado, what would happen? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Do you know the terror of the Lord? 
Paul says, hey, we know the terror of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. You see, persuasion is not something that's just going to be, hey, hi, yeah, do you, do you want me to talk to you about spiritual things? No. Oh, okay. In other words, there is a need to pursue and to persuade them. They are lost in darkness. They need light to shine. How will they know unless they hear? How will they know unless those of us that do know the terror of the Lord are willing to open our mouths? The timid woman who became a powerhouse for the gospel is Catherine Booth. It seems to me that we have come infinitely short of any right and rational idea of the aggressive spirit of the New Testament saints. Satan has got Christians to accept what I may call a namby-pamby, kid-glove kind of system of presenting the gospel to people. Will they be so kind as to read this tract or book, or would they not like to hear this popular and eloquent preacher? They will be pleased with him quite apart from religion. That is the sort of half-frightened, timid way of putting the truth before unconverted people and of talking to them about the salvation of their souls. It seems to me this is utterly antagonistic and repugnant to the spirit of the early saints. Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. And again, the same idea, unto whom now I send thee. Look what is implied in these commissions. It seems to me that no people have ever yet fathomed the meaning of these two divine commissions. Look at them. Would it ever occur to you that the language meant go and build chapels and churches and invite the people to come in? And if they will not, let them alone. Go ye. If you sent your servant to do something for you and said, go and accomplish that piece of business for me, you know what it would involve. You know that he must see certain persons and run about the city to certain offices and banks and agents involving a deal of trouble and sacrifice. But you have nothing to do with that. He is your servant. He is employed by you to do that business and you simply commission him to go and do it. What would you think if he went and took an office and sent out a number of circulars inviting your customers or clients to come and wait on his pleasure? And when they chose to come just to put, out, put your, your business before them? No, you would say ridiculous. Divesting our minds of all conventionalities and traditionalisms, what would the language mean? Go ye. To whom? To every creature. Where am I to get at them? Where they are. Every creature. There is, the extent, there is the extent of your commission. Seek them out. Run after them. Whenever, wherever you can get at them. Every creature. Wherever you find a creature that has a soul, there go and preach my gospel to them. If I understand it, that is the meaning and the spirit of the commission. That's an uncomfortable interpretation, by the way. However, I think it's good to have it weigh on us. The commission to sprint. They are asleep, go and wake them up. They do not see their danger. If they did, there would be no necessity for you to run after them. They are preoccupied. Open their eyes and turn them round by your desperate earnestness and moral suasion and moral force. Oh, it makes me tremble to think what a great deal one man can do for another. Turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. How did Paul understand it? He says, we persuade men. Do not rest content with just putting it before them, giving them gentle invitations and then leaving them alone. He ran after them, poor things, and pulled them out of the fire. Take the bandage off their eyes which Satan has bound round them. Knock and hammer and burn in with the fire of the Holy, Holy Ghost your words into their poor, hardened, darkened hearts until they begin to realize that they are in danger, that there is something amiss. Go after them. Compel them. Go out and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Of course, this comes out of one of Jesus' parables. But the parable leaves us with a pretty extraordinary statement. Compel them to come in. What is to be done? They have souls. You profess to believe that as much as I do and that they must live forever. Where are they going? What is to be done? 
Jesus Christ says, go after them. When all the civil methods have failed, when the genteel invitations have failed, when one man says that he has married a wife and another that he has bought a yoke of oxen, another that he has bought a piece of land, then does the master of the feast say, the ungrateful wretches, let them alone. No, he says, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I will have guests. Go and compel them to come in. What? Am I to let my unconverted friends and acquaintances drift down quietly to damnation and never tell them about their souls until they say, if you please, I want you to preach to me? Is this anything like the spirit of early Christianity? No. Verily, we must make them look, tear, off, tear the bandages off, open their eyes, make them bear it. And if they run away from you in one place, meet them in another and let them have no peace until they submit to God and get their souls saved. This is what Christianity ought to be doing in this land and there are, pl there are plenty of Christians to do it. Why? We must give the world such a time of it that they would get saved in very self-defense if we were only up and doing and determined that they should have no peace in their sins. Like I said, these are challenging things to hear, and I don't know how well you're, you're handling all these things, but for me, it's very, very important to hear it. I want to hear it clearly, and I do not want to hear it sideways. I want to hear it straight on. God, am I living my life the way I should? Am I spending my time the way I should? Am I building my life around the priority of you, or am I merely an American Christian? I want to be a Christian Christian. I want to be the real thing. And I know that is the heart cry of this church. We don't want to play at Christianity. We desire to live it. It's okay to acknowledge your need. You just mustn't allow the timidity to remain. Eric says, Lord, I can't do this. You, you ever felt that? Yeah, I have so many things in my life where that quote comes out. Uh, <clears throat> Lord, I can't do this. Eric, says Jesus, will you let me do this in you? Eric says, yes, please. I beg for the baptism of love to overcome me. May I have an eternal ache for the souls bound in sin. And may I not be able to ignore these precious ones, forget them, overlook them, or walk by them passively again. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. If you have timidity, if you have fear, one good thing is you know that it doesn't come from God. You know that that actually helps? I deal with that all the time. You know those thoughts that will come into your head? Once you know the truth, you know that, well, that thought doesn't come from God. And as a result, you can resolutely purge it. You can shoo it away with confidence because if it came from God, you, you don't know if, should I open the door to it? Should I allow it in? Sort of one of those, Eric, you're nothing. Give up. It's like, oh, God, do you want me to give up? Am I nothing? Okay, you can recognize that voice. That doesn't come from God. And once you have that clear, you can shoo it away. Fear to say, oh, but uh, what if they reject you? What if they laugh at you? What if they throw you into prison? There's no fear in Christianity. Did you know that? I mean, there's fear, but there's no fear in Christ. There's no fear of what man can do to you. There's no fear. I, I remember in Tortured for Christ, which, what, in about 10 days we're going to watch in here, which you guys are going to uh, be greatly impacted by. Uh, Richard Wormbrandt lived in communist Romania, and he was out sharing the gospel, risking his life. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. And he had a scripture that was 
God making clear that there is no fear. There's no need for fear. There's no fear in a Christian. He had 366 of them. So he said he had 365, and then he found one for leap year. So uh, he had one every day that he would repeat to himself. Because what is it that is hindering us? Well, pride and fear. But if you have love, you don't care. It melts fear. It melts timidity. It melts away the pride. Hey, I'm not, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for them. They must know. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So what has he given us? He's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. You ever had it where you're talking with someone about the gospel? And you're in one of those tense situations where they're sort of mocking you, and your brain just sort of leaks out everything that it knows? You ever had that? Uh, that's why you need to come back to this in those moments that God, remember you've given me a sound mind. Somehow it's not working right now. I need you to, uh, to work in a supernatural way to give me a few words that I can string together that sound intelligent. You were relentlessly pursued. Do you know that? You were relentlessly pursued. You ever thought about how Jesus gained you? Think about how rotten you were. How hard-hearted, hard-headed you were, some of you, and some of you uh, maybe you don't really realize it yet, but you still were. In other words, that God went out of his way to get you. And he didn't just come once and knock. He pursued you with a relentlessness. So you were relentlessly pursued. That same Holy Spirit that relentlessly pursued you lives inside of you. Now you must allow the relentless Savior to love and pursue others through you. Ah! Could you imagine if you agreed with that and said, Holy Spirit, when you want to relentlessly pursue someone, I'm your vehicle. Ah, that's a bit scary, don't you think? If you began to pursue people the way the Holy Spirit pursued you, what would that look like? I have a hunch our lives need to change. Just a hunch. I am starting out uh, by saying, I recognize that I need a complete overhaul of my life, not because my life hasn't been lived in obedience. I, up to this point, have been living to the best I know to live with a clear conscience, with integrity, to say, God, here's your vessel. But God is working me over to say, Eric, are you ready for me to take you deeper? And my answer is yes, even though there's a little trepidity in the yes. So here's how we're going to finish. A little encouragement from Ray Comfort. Find a sinner and start practicing. I don't think we're going to have much difficulty, guys, to start. The difficulty lies in here. You've been given truth. You know the truth. You know what God is asking of you. It's okay to acknowledge your weakness. It's okay to acknowledge that you need him to do it through you. But he's simply looking for willing vessels. Even if those vessels are pathetic like we are. We're not the most impressive batch of people on earth. There's a lot more impressive people out there. But he's chosen us. He's chosen weak things and foolish things. I know some of you are like, did you just call me weak and foolish? Yes, I did. It's okay. The sooner you come to that conclusion, the more the Holy Spirit can use you. Because you're the vessel he delights to use. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.